Father, I thank you for the men and women who are here this morning, for each life, for each family represented, for the loved ones that are dear to each one. And in many instances, Father, there are loved ones who have never given their hearts to you and don't know the fellowship that we can experience here today. Father, I pray you will touch those lives and draw them to yourself too. And Father, make our lives each day a true witness to you, to the joy, the peace, the patience that comes from God, even in the midst of trials. And Father, as we study uh, the life of Jacob and Joseph and the brothers and the migration to Egypt, I pray, Father, that the truths of God, which were applicable then, we will recognize as applying to us today too, and that the God of Joseph is our God. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And Father, may we draw strength and sustenance and comfort from your word today, in Christ's name. Amen. Genesis chapter 46. I'd like to read the first seven verses of Genesis 46. So Israel set out with all he, that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And Jacob spoke to Israel, and God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here am I. And he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again, and Joseph will close your eyes. Then Jacob arose from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob and their little ones and their wives in the wagons which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. And they took their livestock and their property, which they had acquired in the land of Canaan, and came to Egypt. Jacob and all his descendants with him, his sons and his grandsons with him, his daughters and his granddaughters, and all his descendants he brought with him to Egypt. The story of a migration. If you study history, you discover there have been many, many migrations in the course of history. Some of them have been peaceful and some of them have not. Uh, most of us are here, here the result of a migration from some other land. Uh, from Europe or wherever it might be. Here we're talking, of course, about a very small migration, just 70 or so people moving just a few hundred miles. There have been records in history of millions of people moving thousands of miles and, of course, leaving great havoc in their wake as they moved. Such is, of course, not the case here. What I think is significant to begin with this morning is to consider whether or not Jacob questioned in his mind what God was doing here. And whether or not he did, certainly, I think, questions come into our minds as to why God does what God does. According to the testimony of Joseph, as we've already noted in previous Sundays, God had miraculously saved him and had used him to prepare the way for the family of Jacob to come to Egypt. However, we might ask, why did God go to all that trouble? Why did God go to the trouble of having Joseph hated by his brothers, sold to the Ishmaelites, carried down to Egypt, becoming a servant, going to prison, becoming prime minister through a 20-year period of time? Why, why did God do all that? 
Wouldn't it have been easier for God just to exempt southern Canaan from the drought? So the family would have lived on just fine there, and they would not have been impacted by the drought, which had covered the whole world, that part of the world anyway, the eastern Mediterranean land at least. Or could not God have just as easily provided for the family somehow in the midst of the drought, like he did Elijah later on? The birds came and fed Elijah, and he sat there by the brook. Water was running. Birds were feeding him. Didn't matter how bad the drought was in the land of Israel. Elijah was provided for. Could God not have done that for Jacob and his family? Well, we know certainly God could have done that had he so chosen. We might bring this down to a more personal level and think, for instance, if God intends for us to be healed, let's say, of some particular illness or problem, why does he not just do it? I mean, God has all the power in the world, right? He can heal us instantly. He can heal us completely. Why is it that he allows us many times to go through long, time-consuming and cost-consuming medical procedures and a lot of agony and frustration and maybe even anxiety? Why, why does God do that? Jacob may have wondered why God allowed him to suffer for 20 years. I mean, think of what jo Jacob might have thought of here. He now knows that Joseph is alive and well, and Joseph is down in Egypt, and he's Lord of Egypt. And, and he could say, thank you, Lord, that this is true. But he could also say, but Lord, you knew this all along. <laughs> you knew it. Why did you keep it a secret from me for 20 years? Why did you let me go through the agony of thinking my, my, my beloved son had been torn by fang and claw and left, you know, totally consumed? Well, why did you do that to me, you know? <laughs> Often we have that little preposition to in there, right? To me is the way we look at it rather than for me. We don't often look at pain and anxiety and, and, and circumstances that are rather ill as something done for us. Just think about it if we're the other way around and God always informed us what he was going to do and when he was going to do it and why he was going to do it before he did it. Can you imagine? I mean, do you know your nature as well as I know my nature? Would we not argue with God? <laughs> now, God, I don't think that's a good plan. I've got a better plan, God. You know. Can you imagine us telling God we have a better plan? Yeah, <laughs> I can imagine that. <laughs> I think many times we have thought that. We have thought, Lord, why did you do this? I, I have a better plan. <laughs> one that would be a whole lot less stress for me or for the ones I love. I think the answer, at least in part, is that if that were true, we would never learn to trust. We would never learn to cast ourselves, blindly if you wish, at the feet of God and say, whatever your will, let it be done. Whatever you allow, I accept, because I believe that your love for me is complete and absolute, that there is no way in which you have any ill will towards me. You have a love beyond my ability to love myself or my family. And therefore, everything you do for me is benevolent. It's out of love. And it may seem hard at the time, but your purposes are for my good. True faith in God is believing without seeing that God does what he does for the good of his people that he is, by his very nature, a good God. He is not able to do ill. 
And of course, people ask the questions then, why do planes crash into mountains? And why, does, why do epidemics sweep through India and take thousands of lives? We can ask all kinds of questions like that. But we fail to recognize, I think, when that happens, that God allows the sin of this world to be worked out. Because if God didn't allow the sin of this world to be worked out, people would not be brought to the place of acknowledging their need of Him. I don't know about you, but unless I have a sense of sin and guilt in my life, I wouldn't turn to God. Again, we just can be reminded of Martin Luther. He had such a sin guilt, it kept driving him to God until finally the Spirit of God opened his eyes and he saw the truth from the Word of God and, and he was truly and soundly converted. And the same was true for John Wesley on the ship as he listened to the Moravian missionaries. And, and as God spoke to his heart, and this man who had already been a missionary himself, but a blind missionary, didn't know the God he, he spoke of, uh, was, was converted because he sensed in himself an inadequacy. He sensed in himself that he didn't know God. So God allows things to happen in our lives for the, for the purpose of bringing us to faith and to trust and to total commitment. We need to commit ourselves to God in spite of everything, not because of everything. Because we've come to believe that God is true to what his word says. I'd like for us, if we would for a moment, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Begin reading at verse 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, Things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of a man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man, that's the unconverted, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. Ever wonder why you can witness to somebody and they haven't a clue what you're talking about? They cannot relate. But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised, spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no man. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he should instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. How do we have the mind of Christ? We have the mind of Christ because, first of all, we are born again and, and, and the Spirit of God comes to dwell within us. And you'll notice the Spirit of God is the key to this whole thing. 
It's the Spirit who instructs. It's the Spirit who enlightens. It's the Spirit who brings us to knowledge of the truth, the indwelling Holy Spirit within us. And it is He that helps us to discern what is true, and yet we, in terms of our faith, are not discerned by the world. The world does not understand why we... They don't know why you're sitting here today, you know. When you could be watching football or out on the lake or, you know, do it, sleeping in, uh, there are a lot of things you could be doing. Why would you want to be sitting here hearing somebody teach from a book of legends? You know, it's like getting up early in the morning and go listening to the Iliad or something, you know, being read by somebody. Uh, to the world, it's the same thing. And, and yet we're here because we know, I trust, that God is here and God is instructing us and He is drawing us to a knowledge of Himself so that we might better serve Him in this world. And the only time that knowledge really becomes firm in our hearts is when difficulties come along and drive the wedge of God's Word into our hearts. You know, if everything's going hunky-dory, why, we just kind of read the Word, yeah, I, I believe all that, but the real belief doesn't come until hard times come and we don't understand what's going on and, and we're under pressure and anxiety and fear and all kinds of things tempt us along the way. It's then when the Word of God becomes real to us, isn't that so? I mean, it sure seems to be that's the way it's been in, in, in my life. And, and I haven't been through, you know, the terrible problems that some people have been through. But I know this from testimony of many, many others. And, and so there's a mystery here that Paul speaks about, the mystery of God through the ages. But that mystery is being revealed to us by the Spirit, slowly but surely. And the better we understand the Word of God, the more that mystery is unveiled to us. Now, we won't know the totality of it in this life. We won't understand the totality of who the Trinity is and, and the reality of the Incarnation. I mean, theologians have batted it back and forth for hundreds of years. How could God come and suffer? Because God, because it's impossible for God to suffer since He is who He is. And how do you explain it? Well, we can't. Just like we can't explain the Trinity. You know, we may take an egg or we may take an apple or we may take something else to try to explain the Trinity, but that is, is a poor, I mean, it's as best we can do, but it doesn't really explain the triune God. So there are mysteries that we cannot fathom, but the door is slowly being opened to us uh, as we walk with Him. And I, I don't know about you, but as I walk in the world, a lot of things about the world no longer are tempting because they seem so ludicrous and ridiculous. They have nothing to do with what real life's about or, or what the hope of life is all about. And when you see tragedy all around us all the time, people uh, being murdered and, and killed in terrible accidents, and, and you realize that those people are passing from probably a joyous life into an even less joyous eternity. And yet God has given us the privilege of having joy in this life because we know Him and our eternity is settled and to have eternal joy. I mean, that should, should really cause us to look at the difficulties in our life with a less jaundiced uh, look, <laughs> to understand it better. And I know many of you have gone through really hard times and are going through hard times, and, and you have family members who are going through difficult times. But God has a purpose in it all, just as he did here for Jacob, allowing him to go through these 20 years, and now the whole family has to pick up lock, stock, and barrel and move down to Egypt, of all places. You know, the pit of paganism. That's sort of like God asking us to get up and move to Las Vegas. Pardon me if anybody's from Las Vegas. But, you know, or Atlantic City or someplace. 
and expecting us to live there. For us, it would be a little easier because we do know that there are true churches of the living God in Las Vegas. But there were no churches. There, there, there was nobody in Egypt except Joseph and hopefully his wife and his two sons who knew the living God. So they were just moving into the pit of earthly hell, it would seem, as they made this migration. From hindsight, we can clearly see, I think, that one of the reasons God was having Jacob and his family move to Egypt was that they be a witness to the Egyptians. For 200 years, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their family have been a witness, at least of sorts, to the Canaanites. They have been hearing about the God of Abraham. And they had had their opportunity. And now it's Egypt's turn to have its opportunity. Now, Jacob probably didn't really realize this. We have to put ourselves in his place at that time. Uh, he didn't have the word of God to go by, so did he really understand that he was to be a witness down there in Egypt? Well, probably never thought of it in, in those terms. But he certainly knew that Egypt was not the promised land. Canaan was the promised land. That's why he is very uncertain about this move until he encounters God. Now, God has historically appeared to Jacob at every, time, at every moment that he had to make a major move. And, and you remember, we studied uh, these in previous chapters of Genesis. But until Jacob committed himself to make this move, and he took the first step, moving down from Hebron to Beersheba, from the mountaintop down into the valley, if you will, God didn't confirm his move to Egypt until he had made that first step. It reminds me of the Israelites as they stood ready to enter the land of Canaan. And God said, I will be with you, go into the land. But the river roared on by. Remember, it was that flood stage and the Jordan River in those days, they didn't have canals taking water off everywhere and, and the nation of Israel sucking up the Sea of Galilee. So at flood stage, the Jordan River widened out into a, a pretty broad uh, river down towards the Dead Sea. And they stood there before this river and they were told to go into the land, but until the priests with the ark put their feet in the water, there was nothing but everything saying, no way, Jose, you know, there's no way you can do this. You're not going to be able to go into the land because this mighty river is in front of you and everybody will be washed away trying to cross this river. But as soon as they took the first step, the river parted and it was dry land. And so it would be for Jacob, it would seem. Had he remained in Hebron, God may have never appeared to him because he didn't take the first step in faith. Because his son Joseph was the spokesman. Joseph said, come to me. It was God's word through Joseph for him to come. The pressure of the circumstances, of course, all of his sons saying, let's go, Dad. After all, we're going to starve to death if we stay here. Uh, they knew the reality of it all because they had stood toe-to-toe -to -toe with Joseph. And, of course, his desire to see the son that he had not seen for so many years and believed to be dead. This, of course, helped to, for him to strike camp and to at least make the first step of the journey down to Beersheba. But notice, when he gets to Beersheba, he decides to make a sacrifice to God. His hope is that God will then appear to him as God had before. You know, whether it was at Penuel or 
or, or Bethel or wherever it was, God had appeared to him before and he was hoping God would appear to him again. So before making the fearsome journey to Egypt, I don't, I don't really think that any of us can really understand how frightening the thought of moving to Egypt really was to Jacob. Remember, he's not a young man anymore. And uh, even though he has trust in God, Egypt is, a, is, you know, it's a foreign land in every sense of the word. And he's not real keen on the trip. But he makes the sacrifice where his father Isaac had sacrificed and where his grandfather Abraham had sacrificed, there Jacob made a sacrifice. And I think we can understand thereby why Beersheba is such an important place to, to Israelis, even today. Because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all made their sacrifices to God there at Beersheba. Beersheba was the last region that was familiar to Isaac. He had been there before, and he'd wandered in the fields around there, but he had never been to Egypt. His sons had. They'd made the journey. And, of course, Joseph was living in Egypt, but he needed some reassurance. And he was hoping that God would speak to him and encourage him and give him direction. What happens is just a clear example of God's love and faithfulness because they are wonderfully displayed here to this old man who, because of his own failures, has created many of the problems that existed in his life and impacted his family. And, and even had Joseph down in Egypt, at least some of the responsibility was his. But God came to him anyway in response to his prayer and God appeared to Jacob. As far as the biblical record is concerned, this will be the eighth and last time that God appears to Jacob. The verse 2 of this passage that we read tells us that God spoke to Jacob in night visions. And we should note two things here. The passage specifically says that God spoke to him doesn't say God appeared to him, but you'll notice the word vision is used, and it comes from the root word meaning to see. So it implies that he not only heard, but that he saw some manifestation of God as God communed with him. And then secondly, you also notice that the word vision is plural, which of course can simply mean, like we might say, well, I saw this in my dreams last night, meaning we had maybe more than one dream. And it could be then that this means that God gave him sequence of visions in, in one night or maybe even over several nights that there were a sequence or was a sequence of visions. Whatever the case, notice what God calls this man. Jacob, Jacob does not call him Israel although he is called Israel at the end of the previous chapter and he's called Israel at the beginning of this chapter, by Moses in the narrative, God calls him Jacob. I think Jacob responded enthusiastically because Jacob was anxiously hoping God would appear to him. He didn't know how or where, even though God had appeared to him in dreams before. And, and so I think each night he went to bed, he he was anticipating that God would come, and when God did, 
I think he enthusiastically responded, here am I. Reminds me of Samuel. You know, Samuel didn't know that it was the voice of the Lord at first. But, but when, when Eli said, respond, it's God, he said, here am I. You know, just as a young lad, he responded, here am I. And so does Jacob. And Jacob responds even as the little boy Samuel responds, as we must respond to God as if we were children. Not sophisticated adults with all this worldly wisdom who say, well, yes, God, what have you got to say to me? But, you know, humbly and, and, and you know, bowed before God as it were, oh, God, here am I. What have you got to say? I've got nothing to offer you. You are all and I am nothing in, in effect. And that's the way I think Jacob comes to God or came to God here. He, the implication is he was ready to hear and ready to obey. And, of course, what he really wanted to hear, he desperately wanted to see Joseph. So he wanted God to come and say, go to Egypt and I'll be with you. And lo and behold, <laughs> what does God say? Well, first of all, God made it clear who was talking to him. I think God does that. And I think it's important that we know who we're talking to. Because some people have heard an angel of light. And that angel of light instructed them things contrary to the scripture. And I think a person needs to know that that angel of light is not God. You've all heard of people who have near-death experiences, you know, and they're, they're the epitome of a sinner. And they've had this experience of, of sailing through this peaceful light and towards the end of the tunnel they meet this shining being that says, welcome to the wonderful world that I have for you. And then they wake up, you know, and they say, oh, well, you know, we have this wonderful world ahead of us. And, well, who is that angel of light on the other end saying we have this wonderful world? Well, if you stripped away the light, you'd see the horns and the fangs, as it were. <laughs> Not really, but it would, it would be the enemy. Because the scripture says he appears even as if he were an angel of light, because at one time he was. He knows how to imitate that. But to the believer whose eyes are sharpened by the word of God and through prayer, the angel of light is stripped of his brilliance. And, and we know when he is speaking a lie in our ears. Years ago when I was working for uh, a bank, I got on an elevator in a particular building and uh, this lady came on and she had a picture of Baghdad Rajneesh. <laughs> well, no, Bagwan. <laughs> Rajneesh, I always called him Baghdad. But anyway, <laughs> might as well have been in Baghdad for all that matter. But anyway, she had uh, on here, and so I asked her about him, and she says, well, she says, I was a born-again Baptist, but I found no truth in that, but this really, this really ministers to me. And I thought, well, I said, I hardly believe you were born again. <laughs> if you were born again by the Spirit of the living God, you couldn't believe this garbage, because this is of the angel, this is of the, you know, the angel of death. Satan, as an angel of light, has blinded, had blinded this woman. She thought she knew the truth, but, you know, a lot of people go through their, quote, born-again experience because this is what you do in a particular evangelical church. But they never encountered God for themselves. Never had a one-on-one -on -one life transforming meeting with a living God. That needs to happen first. And then... This, this, this ravenous appetite for the Word needs to be developed so that the Word is so implanted in our hearts and lives that we will not be tossed about.
by every wind of doctrine. Yeah, you know, the waves that come along and throw all this garbage up all the time. We see the truth because the Spirit of God communes that this is a lie and this is truth because we know what is counterfeit. And so God came to, to Jacob and said, I am El, the Elohim of your father is Isaac. Jacob knew that name. Now, El was the common uh, name used in the Semitic world for God, but this God who was speaking was the specific God of his father, Isaac. And by using the term Elohim, which we know to be the plural of El, we assume and infer that this is a reference to the triune Godhead, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the first thing God said is what Jacob wanted to hear. He said, do not be afraid to go down into Egypt. Do not be afraid to go to Egypt. Because there I'm going to multiply your family into a great nation. Egypt was going to be the crucible for the forging of the, of the Israelite nation, which would come forth out of Egypt two million strong, would go in 70 and come out two million and be led of God through the wilderness to conquer the land that God had given to them. There's really an important concept here, I think, for us to, to get. Had the nation of Israel remained in Canaan, where the people around them were similar to them in language, in ethnic background, similar to them in culture and history, it would have been possible for Israel to have been assimilated into the larger Canaanite crowd. And we know what happened later on when the Canaanite Baals and Ashtarts were worshipped and many Israelis were sucked into that kind of worship. So we know that it would have been possible for them to have been assimilated. But in Egypt, assimilation was impossible. Because for one thing, the Egyptians would not allow it to happen. The, the, the Egyptians were dissimilar to the Hebrews in virtually every way. Different language, diff, different ethnic background, different culture, different religion. You name it, it was different between the Egyptians and, and the Hebrews. So there was, there was no attraction or, or affinity there between these two groups. In fact, the Egyptians hated foreigners and particularly Asiatic nomads. That's what makes this even a greater miracle, that they're able to move into Egypt at the welcome of Pharaoh to live amongst a people who by nature hated them and hated everything they stood for, which tells us that God can do what God chooses to do no matter what the circumstances may be. As far away from what we believe would be the necessary circumstance for God to accomplish something, God can work. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but sometimes you think, I'm going to make everything just right. I'm going to get the right environment and everything just right so I can witness to this person. And we do, and, and nothing happens. Eh, well, yeah, you believe that way, I believe this way, it's all. And sometimes in another circumstance where, you know, the, the news is some the televangelist has, has fallen into sin and, and this church is arguing and fighting and, and this and that happens and yet with hardly a word of witness all somebody comes to know Christ just like that, you know. It's just the miracle, of course, what God 
is able to do, no matter what the circumstances might be. So there was almost no, th no, no threat of assimilation in Egypt. They were kept, if you will, in isolation in this land, preserved there. It's sort of like oil and water. They simply will not mix, ultimately. So the Hebrews would be forced to live separately from the Egyptians. They would have the opportunity to develop their own peculiar culture with their own specific worship of the true and the living God. And they would maintain a monotheism in the midst of a horrendous polytheistic society. They would worship the true and the living God in the midst of a society that could care less. And if that isn't becoming more and more true of our society, I don't know what is. You and I today, if we hold to the truth, are finding that we are more and more alien in our own culture, a culture which used to be one in which virtually everybody at least paid lip service to the God of the Bible. And almost everybody had some knowledge of the Bible. But today, it's such a different story. Well, God not only said, do not be afraid. He said, the reason you shouldn't be afraid is I will go with you into Egypt. Now, Jacob probably knew, certainly at least we know, that God was omnipresent. So God was with Jacob and God was already in Egypt. So this is not what God is talking about. He is not talking about, I'll be with you simply because I'm omnipresent and, and I'm everywhere. This is a specific promise of divine protection, a specific promise of divine provision. I will personally go with you and build a shield around you, as it were, as you go into the land of Egypt. Furthermore, God's promise was that I not only will go with you, I will bring you up again out of Egypt. Now that promise did not mean that Jacob alive would return to Canaan because we know he dies in Egypt. But what it specifically meant was you will return back to the land of Canaan in two senses. Your bones will be brought back and they will be buried in the cave of Machpelah so that you can lie in, at rest next to Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Rebekah and Leah. But more importantly, and the real thrust of what God is saying here, is that the nation of Israel, the, the, the people that are born out of your loins, will come forth out of the land as a great nation and return to this land, not as aliens as Abraham was in a foreign land, but as conquerors, as the people who will take the land of promise and live in it. I think Jacob understood this to the extent that God said, and Joseph will close your eyes, meaning Joseph will be by your side when you die. And since Joseph is the Lord of the land of Egypt, he certainly isn't probably going to go back and live in Canaan. So that means he, he knew then that he would die in the land of Egypt. Jacob was encouraged by God's words. This is one of the primary reason, reasons that God gives us his word. He not only gives us his word to instruct us, to chide us at times, to convict us of sin, but he gives us his word 
to encourage and comfort us. Now, we can become extreme on either side. There are some people who feel the Bible is just for slapping people with, you know, whack them upside the head. Do you know what God says about this? You know, and there are other people who think the Bible is just to be used to talk about, you know, talk to people in, in, in sweet, loving, little, kind words. You know, God is such a loving God. God. You know, he would never do anything. You know, we, we go those two extremes. And what we have is a word of balance. This is what God is. He's a God of balance. Uh, and and the, the word of conviction is there when it's needed, but the word of comfort is there when it is needed, too. And it's the Spirit of God who applies it at the right time. He applies conviction when it's needed, and he applies comfort when it's needed. And uh, God is into comfort. In fact, Paul, in 2 Corinthians, you remember this uh, verse where he says that our God is the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. Now, you think about that verse for a moment. He comforts us in all our affliction. That implies we will have affliction, and it won't be just an isolated experience that we will probably have affliction at many points in our life. And it may vary in, in intensity, but God's comfort is equal to the affliction. If it's great, his comfort is great. If it's small, his comfort is whatever it takes to give comfort and encouragement at that time. The psalmist of course, the various psalmists are used by God to give us many words of comfort. And I'd like to just read one passage from the 62nd Psalm, which is an example of the comforting words of God. And of course, you could bring up dozens and hundreds of such examples from the Psalms in particular. But I'd like to read just a few verses from Psalm 62. Verse 1, My soul waits in silence for God only. From him is my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be greatly shaken. Verse 5. My soul, wait in silence for God only. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. And I shall not be shaken. On God my salvation and my glory rest. The rock of my strength, my refuge is in God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Trust in him occasionally. Trust in him when everything goes well. Trust in him when you're at church. Trust in him when you're singing the nice little choruses. No, at all times, when, when you're facing that, that jeering boss or, or that relative who thinks you're a nitwit because you believe in these legends, you know, or, 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 or when someone is dying that's dear to you, or, or when a sudden bill comes that you weren't expecting and it wipes out your savings, whatever. Trust in him at all times. And he says, pour out your heart before him. Tell him. Years ago, I read a book by Thomas Howard, who's the brother of Betty Elliott, and uh, it's called Christ the Tiger. <laughs> Strange title. But in it, he said, in effect, 
Tell God anything you feel. Don't hold it back, because you're not going to surprise him. If you're mad at him, tell him so. If you're disappointed in him, tell him so. You're not going to hurt him. <laughs> I mean, he wants honesty more than anything else. And, and God knows our hearts, and God loves us no matter if we're angry at him or disappointed in him. Just let him have it, because he can take it. If we had to cry to cram it back down and pretend like, oh, God, we really love you, and, you know, uh, be honest. He said some other things in the book I didn't quite agree with, but I thought that was a really good insight because it releases us. It releases us from trying to play a game and put on a facade before God because it doesn't do us any good and it sure isn't fooling him one little bit. If we always are cognizant of the fact that God is omniscient, he knows everything, and the scripture tells us he knows our words before we ever speak them, before we even think them. So we might as well just let him have it and let him do the work that he wants to do in our lives. God encouraged Jacob by promising his personal, active presence in his life. He didn't just say, Go on, Jacob, be warmed and be filled, and then walk away. He said, I will go with you. I will actively stand alongside you and strengthen you and protect you as you go. This promise has been made to us, too. All of us are very, very familiar with the uh, last passage in, in, in the book of Matthew where Jesus, the, the last words he spoke is recorded by Matthew were, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And he was not just speaking to Peter and James and John and Thomas and Bartholomew. He was speaking through them to us that God will actively and specifically be with us, not in the omnipresent sense that God, yeah, God is here and God is there and God is in Timbuktu but in the sense that God is in our lives and he walks with us through the crises of our day and the blessings of our day, and he's personally with us. And he wants to commune with us and he wants us to listen to him. And that's one of the reasons why if we neglect the word of God, we have a very hard time hearing because that's the way he primarily speaks to us is through his word. And God will be with us not in a generic sense, but in the specific sense as we walk this life with him. He will go with us into hell, as it were, in this life and be with us, just as he went with Jacob into this, this pit of paganism. So he goes with us. So when we go to that office or wherever we may go and everybody there is a, is a committed pagan, and they're having so much fun, supposedly, doing all these things which the Bible says thou shalt not, and you're a little goody-two-shoes there in the midst. Uh, just remember, God is there. The mighty God of the universe is there. And you may be very, very bashful and, and very fearful, but being honest before, I mean, just tell, just say, you know, God, I don't even know how to talk to these people. I'm afraid of them. God will work and, and God will bring about. Uh, sometimes the witness is very subtle, but profound. 
and it will change lives. I mean, I'm sure Jacob didn't walk up to Pharaoh and grab Pharaoh by the tunic and say, you better believe in hell or you're going to go to hell, you know. But Joseph had already been by his life a witness there. And, and Jacob and his family, what kind of family did he have, you know? Two brothers that murdered the male population of a city and another brother who, who, who went off with a, his own uh, ex-daughter-in-law and committed fornication with her and married a Canaanitess. And another one in this we'll be reading, married a Canaanitess. And we're going to say, what kind of testimony is this? You know. Well, God somehow works even through all of those tragedies to bring about his purpose. So Jacob is so encouraged, he says, boys, let's go. We're going to Egypt. I don't know if they invented a little chorus to go along with the trip. Probably not. But uh, they packed everything up. Jacob and the children and the wives riding on these ox carts and all the goods attached to the donkeys and the camels and the sheep and the goats and, and the cattle all driven along apace. It must have been a merry sight. Can you imagine some caravan passing them and looking at this group as he went by and just kept looking and looking and here they are strung out along the, the road passing. It must have been a marvelous sight. Hundreds of people, remember they had all their servants too, hundreds of people, thousands of animals in this migration. The, the, there must have been a giant cloud of dust flying as they moved. I think they moved pretty slowly. For the sake of all the little baby animals, if there were any in the midst of drought, uh, probably weren't very many. But uh, as they were moved, they moved slowly because forage was probably largely gone. And so to conserve strength and to reduce the heat factor, they would move as slowly as possible uh, across there. And so it probably took them nearly three weeks to make the journey. I would guess that they would get up at the crack of dawn and they'd move until the heat of the day, then they would shut the whole thing down and go into camp and, and wait for the next morning and move again so that they would stress the animals and the people to the lowest extent as they made the journey. Did God send them a beautiful little cloud to sit on top of them and rain on them as they went? I don't think so. They went through the blazing sun. They went through the time of drought because God doesn't promise to change our environment, to make it hunky-dory for us all the time. He just simply says, I'll go with you through the difficulties of this life, through the stormy seas, through the valley of death. We won't fly over it. We'll go through it. Well, next week, we're going to look at the family that went down there and some of these Hebrew names, which are, a few of them are common to us, right? We have Davids and Benjamins and things like that and Rachels and so forth. But as you look through that list that's given in the next passage, you run across a lot of names that are pretty foreign to us. <laughs> and we don't know anybody with a name like that. And uh, we'll, we'll see why that was.